This is The First Years, a podcast about the unicorns of American agriculture, first-generation farmers, and the guts, grit, determination, and business prowess required to be one. Well, welcome to The First Years, guys. I am so excited to um, share the story of Ben and Laura Neal with you guys today. Um, Ben's on the podcast and he's going to share. So Ben, tell me about your farm. Do you want me to start in how we, we grew up in agriculture or where we are now and then go back to, to growing up? T- just tell me about your farm, how it is now. Okay. Um, currently, we actually run most everything on, on leased ground. Uh, we run about 250 head of our own cattle that are commercial cattle. They're Red Angus, Horn, Hereford, Cross, kind of a red baldy is, is what we make. Um, so that we have a little bit better market for the, the females. We retain ownership on those, go directly to feedlots generally out in, in Kansas. Uh, we are located in central middle Tennessee. Um, have run that on a couple different lease places. We own a small 40-acre place where we run about 75 head of Katahdin sheep as well. And then we have had and, and have some beehives on occasion where we, we keep bees and do different things there. So I'm super interested. I did not know this about your Katahdin sheep. Um, my husband and I have a sheep dairy and we have a little bit of Katahdin genetics in our flock. But okay. before we get to that, I want to know, I want to, you to tell us how you became a farmer because my understanding is that neither you nor Lauren grew up on farms. I actually, I grew up on a small farm. My, my dad is actually an um, engineering background. He's a mechanical engineer. Uh, my granddad was a chemical engineer my older brother's a mechanical engineer but um i grew up in a town that has about 280 people in it now it was about 305 when i was growing up so most of us moved actually out of that small town but where it was located at there was a company called eastern livestock that actually touched a lot of the the stalker business and background in business in the eastern united states and they had a shipping yard um about 15 20 miles from us and and had partners in a a local sale barn um i grew up working for a lot of the local farmers they backgrounded for eastern livestock and so i grew up processing uh hauling hay and cutting tobacco just uh basically to afford going to college um and i grew up riding a, a four-wheeler to those farms and working with those guys so that's kind of where my connection to, to agriculture came my older brother had allergies so he couldn't do that work so he went to town and i stayed local hmm. yeah very very interesting so then what about lauren what what i mean i know she didn't grow up on a farm now, Lauren had had roots in it, though. That was actually her granddad owned the sale barn in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, um, and, and his family had had it as well. So actually, if anybody ever flies into Cedar Rapids, that was part of his old farm um, that they had. They sold it to the to the airport. So they they got out of the business. Uh, his kids didn't didn't want to, to keep that going on. Um, went into different kinds of kind of business there, but then so Lauren had a little bit of background. He actually did cattle. Uh, he was an old figure tone mineral salesman, um, and also fed out sheep with with their operations. So when she was real little, she remembered that part of it. Um, she went to college and actually did a a journalism and anthropology double major, um, and in that part she interned for actually. One, she interned for a chimpanzee sanctuary, but then she went back and interned for Montana stock growers and worked to uh, 
tell ranch life story there. And then after interning there, she was commissioned to do a, a five-part series of Montana Ranch Life and went back out and did a, uh, some photo books, coffee table books for, for that series. Very, very cool. And so then how did you guys, what was the next step in become, like starting your own farm? Um, first was convincing her to marry me, I guess, would be large part. That's what we, we actually got involved through National Cattlemen's and then uh, company that I actually still, I work for today now is, is called Alltech. We were doing consulting with them. Um, I worked out of, out of college originally. I was on a livestock judging team and I went and worked for uh, two large seed stock suppliers in the country. One was in, in Middle Tennessee and the other one was in Southeast Louisiana at the time. Um, there they had done genetic testing and what has now become the Pfizer 50k that that farm originally started some of of that testing um from there I went back to graduate school guy that I worked for there was a a good mentor to me not just in teaching me about cattle but but business and and options of of life and choices that you have um so I went actually back to to graduate school where I'd done my undergrad at at the University of Tennessee at Martin but um, I was able to get back hired on as a full-time um, employee there for the farm. I was assistant farm manager. So I was funded by what was called a, a Southeast Regional Grant that actually I ran the sheep and goat unit, which is when my, that's when that experience came in on top of the, the cattle experience. Um, I tied two masters there because I was full-time uh, employee. So I was able to get my studies paid for 100%. So I actually had intended to start a, MBA, but with uh, where I'd lived at, I was able to start an online class that they had called Ag Operations and Management. So I started that and was able to tie some of those econ classes into an MBA um, in the third year. So I was actually able to get two master's degrees in three years while while being there. Um, leaving graduate school, the Tennessee actually started a nonprofit that was called um, Tennessee Livestock Network, where when Agent Source was becoming, looked like it was going to become a mandatory program, our Department of Ag um, chose to try to do work with this nonprofit that was part of our Farm Bureau co-op and, and some other ag entities here in the state sat on the board of it to be a go-between between the livestock producers and the requirements for export markets. So my job basically entailed doing a lot of the paperwork, birth records, um, EID tagging of cattle on farm, and then working through the livestock market since that had been my background growing up, um, and then getting the certificates ready for agent source verification for the feedlots that bought them. When that became non-mandatory, um, I began, because I didn't know where a lot of those cattle were for, for lot loads, I began buying some of those higher-end cattle and, and direct marketing them to the feedlots or partnering with feedlots. And by doing that, I was able to get back the carcass data, which is something that's abnormal in the southeast, to, to do some consulting um, on the herds to, to help improve the herds, which worked for the feedlots and for the producers because we could work the break-evens better than just being an unknown herd of cattle. Mm-hmm. So that um, that purchasing is kind of what led into uh, um, the herds that I knew and who worked well. And then one of the herds that uh, the herd we now own was one that I had been marketing their cattle for about three or four years. And then um, when the Texas drought was going on in 2011, um, everything that I had saved up from buying and, and trading the calves, I bought two pot loads of cattle out of Texas during that drought. 
and then tied them into this other herd when they they were coming down so they were a lot cheaper than when the market came up that made them worth more and i was able to buy more so that's kind of how we we put our herds together there so i want to lean into this a little bit because i think that one thing we don't think about when um particularly young farmers just starting out about waiting for the right opportunity to buy mm -hmm. and not just being anxious to do it. Can you speak to that a little bit about how, like you obviously had either, however you purchased them, whether that was with a loan or with, you know, capital on hand that you had, um, you had that ready so that when the market presented you an opportunity, you were able to pounce on it. Can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, one of the things, and it worked out in my life, and probably one of the better pieces of advice I got is that prepare for 10 years before you make a decision, you know, and that's not after, that's when you're starting out in your 20s, is use your 20s basically as a preparatory time of, of learning and making relationships, because mm -hmm. um, that's actually what helped me when that drought was on, guys that I knew that were down there, I called and asked them where I could find um, some of the cattle, at, the, the cattle that I bought at came off the Texas Department of Corrections through a sailborn guy that bought about 800 of those and I couldn't afford them but he helped me get a group together I actually partnered with a friend of mine on that set um, he actually funded part of the, the the cattle that we got so some of them I kept even after what we had we had planned on trading them up here um, but because they had worked out so well and the market came up I, I purchased them from him so we were able to get a cheaper price by buying more um, and then, then moving them up. So in that deal alone, that was about four to five different business relationships that I had developed over 10 years of working. And the industry is relatively small um, and manage your reputation in that 10 years of patience <laughs> because there, there are people that get out there and get eager to try to have something a lot quicker and, and it's better to, to make sure that deals work out for both people involved, not just you when you're trying to get started. Um, try to find the value for the other guy. You know, so some of these guys I had done agreements to where no matter their interest may have been 2 or 3%, I paid them 10 or 15% just because they would finance me and work with me on, on get, getting the, the deal done. Mm -hmm. And they would help stand. And, you know, they offered by doing that, even though I was paying a little more, they had some skin in the game, so they all for also offered advice on when to put them into a contract or you know how to how to buy a set a little bit cheaper or some of the sale barn guys have good relationships or own the barn so i would be able to get the cattle bought a little cheaper than uh, if i had gone in and tried to compete with some of the the standards that were there so working within the system was good and developing a good relationship was was also helpful yeah um so i i'm hearing you discuss quite a bit and talk about how um relationships are really important and I think that that's something that we say to young people a lot like um, manage your reputation like you said um, network every opportunity you have um, talk is cheap right so ask all the questions that you can um, what are some tactical tips that you have for developing meaningful relationships um, throughout like you mentioned the 10 years that you recommend people wait yeah, I mean, a lot of it is, it, it's work. People are looking for good partners, um, especially the guys that are very busy. You know, if you know any bigger stocker backgrounder guys, they don't mind putting cattle on you and working out deals with you. Um, but you've got to, 
already be showing some initiative. That's one of the things I think that looking back, um, sometimes people wait on a perfect deal to come out and there's most of the time not going to be one, you know, there's going to be something where you're giving up more than what you feel like you should. But if it's still profitable, then you need to go ahead and do it because that door may open up another one and another one. And, and leases are oftentimes in that regard, you know, there's, there's, um, I've had some lease agreements that didn't work out very well. And I've had some that worked out great. And the reason I've been able to get more of them put together is because I already had one lease and I took care of that land. So somebody else was interested in having a lease. But if you don't ever have one waiting on the perfect deal, then your reputation's not getting established for how you would do the work. You just keep hoping for, for an idea to come. Um, a lot of the networking had come from knowing their businesses and, and trying to, um, a lot of my time when in buying was spent on the road. So by knowing guys' businesses, I would also know who else had some cattle that they might have for sale or who would be a good contact. So you go ahead and say, hey, you need to call Justin or you need to call Michael about these things because it might be good for them and you just put the connection together. So even though you don't make a money on that transaction, the relationship over time will eventually pay out for you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think you're right. I think that's really sound, sound, sound advice. So you have the cows and then you have bees too. Did I hear you say that? That's really interesting. To me. We, uh, we, we do some of the bees. We've actually lessened them. Uh, just, uh, in 2016, I bought a small processing plant too, which has also, that's really taken a lot of my time up. Um, so I have cut. What are you processing? We, we do beef, pork, um, sheep, and deer. It was a custom process, and we do about a 1,000 head of, of beef a year and about 300 hogs. And then sheep was something we started this spring. Okay. So I guess we've done probably 200 sheep to date. Okay. So let's stop here for a minute because this is also interesting (laughs) because i see i think i see i think i see where you're going here in terms of vertical integration and being able are you selling your beef direct to consumer through your processing plant that that is we'll be moving to that in the spring we had been doing freezer beef and that was a bottleneck here where we're located at um part of taking a step back part of what I was doing whenever I was doing the consultation was actually nutritional supplements so because I had grid data and could trace things we would do in the fetal programming stage of the cow um, I consulted with a couple nutrition companies on feed packs mineral packs and those type of things so by developing those we can kind of make some changes in the calves and, and do pretty good so we can we can make local product um that, that finishes well in, in, in short. Um so with doing the freezer beef and, and having where we were, the business started to grow relatively quickly and I could not get enough beef processed um because everybody was full. So it just so happened that I was actually hauling beef two hours one way to to get them processed and then I would have to from our farm and then where we lived at I live about an hour and a half from our farm and then we live 45 minutes from the processing plant so I would have to haul the beef that that far um and then turn around and pick it up so the one just logistically it wasn't convenient to to do and then they would only be able to take two to four at a time and there was time I needed six to eight which would have made my trips a lot more efficient but they couldn't take them so the plant that 
we purchased actually adjoined my dad's farm where I grew up at back home. And it was two brothers that had been custom for years and they were in their late sixties and they closed down in January of, of 16 and we bought it in August of 16. And then we reopened the next spring. And then this past spring we got at USDA, um, a little interesting loophole when you're custom, you are the only person that you can't process for because you can only provide the service to other people. So you can't do it for yourself under USDA inspection. I could, so I bought a plant and couldn't use it. <laughs> so, um, we we became, we became USDA inspected this spring so that we could start reselling our our product as well. That is really interesting. I had no idea. <laughs> One thing I want to clarify. So you mentioned at the beginning that your dad had a farm, but you never talked about working there. So can you describe that a little bit? Like, is it a farm that your family leased out to other people, or was your dad actively farming? Or I. Can you clarify that? No, it was it was 40 acres and about nine to 11 head of cows. So oh. there were trees and deer hunting, but a very, very small acreage. Yeah. So it, it didn't, it was a, no, I understand. It was a place for him. Yeah, you got it. <laughs> so yeah, yeah well, not, not large enough to do, but enough for us to do chores. So precisely. So it, it taught you that you, it is like inspired you to be a full time farmer or some variety of however you want to define that but it wasn't. He still relied on his engineering. Right. Yep. He relied on his engineering income. And that's where I, I say probably the reason that I do what I do is that the men that I grew up working for, um, I spent probably more hours with them than I did even at home, especially through high school. Uh, that's one thing dad did is kind of cut us loose. And, you know, if you were going and working, then he was fine with it. Mm -hmm. So those men took an interest in me. They, still checked on me in college and, and, and those type of things. And that's who they were. That's what they did. So that's ended up what, what I became was because of the, the interest and relationship I had with them. So it sounds like throughout your life, you've had a lot of mentors. Mm -hmm. When you think about, I mean, some mentors, like those, those guys that were in your life when you were a kid, you stumble upon, right? Like they just happened yeah. to you really. Um, when you think about seeking out a mentor, is that something that you've done in your life too? Like identify somebody and be like, Oh, I'd really like for them to mentor me. Like That's been more difficult for me. I guess a, a lot of it has been just by relationship. There have been people that have mentored me. It, it's one of those, I, I guess that, um, Sometimes I don't think as probably as much as I should. I do think a lot, but sometimes I get myself in the middle of something and then I'm trying to figure out a way out of it. And because of the good men that I've been around in that situation, they generally see that. And, and it, it's something that I respect in other people is when they take action and they're trying to get something done and you come alongside them and you help. And, and that's been what I've noticed is that if you wait for help, a lot of times things don't happen. But whenever you're, just starting out and people see that a lot of times people have a better nature than what we give them credit for even buying the process and plan I, I had no experience with that and to be honest the guy that I bought it from came back out of retirement and he worked for me till two weeks ago and he's been training all the, the people that I've had and trained me and and that wasn't part of the plan when we started I had a guy that three days before uh, we were going to open that was supposed to do that and he changed his mind and quit so I was three days before opening and not knowing what I was going to do and, and contacted that the older gentleman. And, and he said, sure, I'd be glad to come help you. So 
some of the mentors have, have came about by necessity, but they, at the same time, they, they've been, been very, very helpful and, and we've been blessed in, in having them. Yeah. Um, so real quick, what is the worst piece of advice that you've ever received? Uh, I thought about that one a, a little bit, and I guess for me, it's it's as much as the mindset, and maybe not necessarily even a piece of advice. Um, I, I do believe because some of it has been to to wait. I think some of that is, is wrong. You gotta you learn a whole lot by taking action. But one of the things that I think for for people getting into the business now, the industry that our parents grew up in, or especially grandparents grew up in, is no longer the industry we operate in. The the margins are a lot different. The capital requirements are a lot different. Um, and there is sound wisdom in, in doing some of the things the same way. Don't take too much risk. Don't get too leveraged. But at the same time, we're operating completely different. So if you don't figure out a way to, to get a unique selling point or a value-added product or cut your costs or work a relationship to where you don't have as much you make money, but you didn't have to outlay it. You know, there, there has to be a way to, to get started just saving the money and trying to do it. You can't sell 18 calves and buy a pickup truck now. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it's going to be a different business to, to be in. And, and that's where some, you know, with where we are, again, we've been blessed and had a lot of good relationships. But if I had just tried to do this the way some people have told me to do it, um, we wouldn't be doing what we're doing. We, we would be about five or ten head in right now trying to trying to save it and go that route so very interesting i have loved um chatting with you and learning about your farm um one question that i ask every guest on the podcast is this one so do you think you know when you look at your success in becoming a farmer do you do you credit that mostly to like lucky timing um or to skill yeah, I credit mine to the good Lord. Um, that there's there's some of both as far as skill. I think there's a whole lot of things in in skill that uh, is hard work. Uh, agriculture is a it's a long game, um, so you can make a few smart decisions, but eventually you're going to get caught in even some of those smart decisions. So mine's more mitigating risk. You know, I buy contract on low end on prices to make sure I don't get stuck with if I have a loan payment on calves. Um, again don't don't over leverage you know some of those things the uh the texas drought was bad for people in texas it was good so you do have to be in a position of cash to where you can take advantage of opportunities uh at the same time we might have a drought next year so you, you you've got to watch and, and hedge but also be able to take take uh take the chances when they are there and some of them don't work out and uh, you know if you if you bat over 500 at baseball that's a good record i feel like if you can do better than that and don't don't over leverage yourself in, in agriculture, you're probably going to do pretty good. Yeah. Thank you. Very, very cool. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Ben. Glad to. I don't know if you could hear our baby back here singing in the background. If it did, she's a lot of fun. We got a seven month old and a three year old. A three year old actually napping right now. So. <laughs> she sounds so sweet, and her pictures are even sweeter. <laughs> Look like mama. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. And I'm Annalisa Laka, and this has been this week's episode of The First Years. Until next time, have a great week. Mm -hmm.